Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Scott Ritter. Scott Ritter is a former Marine Corps intelligence officer who worked in the former Soviet Union implementing arms control treaties in the Persian Gulf during Operation Desert Storm and in Iraq overseeing the disarmament of WMD. He is the author of Deal of the Century, How Iran Blocked the West's Road to War. And he recently published an article in the American Conservative called Trump's Rush to Judgment on Syria Chemical Attack. Scott Ritter, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. We have just seen a bombing campaign launched just prior to some inspectors completing their work. Does this remind you of anything? <laughs> well, this it's part of a pattern of uh, you know the United States and uh, and its allies using weapons of mass destruction as an excuse to you know implement a uh, a larger policy. I think one of the uh, things that differentiate what occurred in Syria recently with, for instance, what occurred in Iraq, is that um, there doesn't seem to be a coherent policy that's, that's being um, sought in Syria. Uh, you know, we, we bomb Syria to what end? To what objective? Uh, unlike Iraq, you know, where we had this massive war plan in place and a, uh, a strategy of regime change, uh, while there might be some people in within the Trump administration who articulate a desire to see Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, removed from power, there is no means uh, being put in place to achieve this. Uh, the United States, under President Trump, and indeed under President Obama before him, seem to have accepted the um, unpleasant reality that uh, Bashar al-Assad, assisted by the Russian Federation, by the Islamic Republic of Iran and by uh, Lebanese Hezbollah, um, you know, has, has not only solidified his hold on power, but uh, in fact will probably prevail in the uh, civil war that's been raging in Syria since 2012. It seems like up until about 2013, the policy was pretty openly overthrowing the government, and people like John McCain were even saying this will be a step to overthrowing Iran's government. Uh, and then when the public really pushed back uh, against uh, an escalation by Barack Obama in 2013 and went quite acceptingly along with an escalation the next year when it was all about ISIS videos and the United States sort of got into the war on both sides of the same war. Uh, I mean, it seems like from that point forward, it, it's been this sort of more confusing picture of which side of the war are you on? It is, am I right that it, in part it's because the the public was so resistant to another overthrow and so accepting of of do anything you want these videos of ISIS are so scary well i i think you're 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 hitting the nail on the head when you talk about the confused status of the american public um i mean i um you know i respect every american citizen's uh inherent right to hold an opinion uh, that's one of the beauties of the the democracy that we that we have but uh it is critical uh, for this democracy to function effectively that the opinion be an informed opinion, uh, an informed opinion based upon facts, not fiction or fantasy. Uh, the average American doesn't know a damn thing, excuse my language, about Syria. It doesn't know anything about ISIS. 
It doesn't know how ISIS was formed. It doesn't know about the roots of ISIS. It doesn't know how ISIS spread. It doesn't know anything about the regime of Bashar al-Assad. It doesn't know, you know, anything about Lebanese Hezbollah. It doesn't know anything about, you know, the Islamic Republic of, of Iran. It doesn't know anything about Russia and why Russia would want to intervene in 2015. We, we, the American public swims in a sea of ignorance and, uh, and, and therefore is easily manipulated. Uh, one of the, the, the you know, factors of manipulation is, is in many ways a, a good one, that um, you know, in the aftermath of the, uh, the decision to invade and occupy Iraq by the uh, administration of George W. Bush back in 2003, I think many Americans have woken up to the harsh reality of uh, what happens when you, you know, overthrow a, uh, a dictator who's held power in a given piece of territory for decades, and you don't have a plan of what to do when, uh, when, when he's gone, how to replace him. Uh, and so they were inherently resistant to the notion of uh, yet another regime change in a neighboring nation that looked an awful lot like the one we just uh, toppled, um, and, and said, no, we don't want to do this again. But on the other hand, um, you know, we, we live this... Uh, era of uh, American exceptionalism, where we have, you know, the, the, the highest level of moral authority in the world, and therefore when some idiot uh, Islamist fundamentalist with a hood over his head takes a knife and saws off the head of, uh, of, 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 of a hostage, uh, we feel like we have an inherent duty and responsibility and obligation to do something about this. My God, this is, this is horrible. Well, on both sides, we've been manipulated. We've been manipulated by uh, an incomplete story. Uh, on the one hand, uh, we, we achieve a result that some, including myself, would say is good. We didn't go into, into Syria. On the other hand, uh, we're easily manipulated into going in to, uh, to defeat ISIS. Um, and uh, on both occasions, we, we have uh, you know, American policy being driven by emotion as opposed to you know, hard fact, hard analysis, sound thinking. Yeah. So, so what are the facts, if any? What's your assessment of these accusations of somebody having killed people in the wrong way? That is, with chemical weapons rather than some other kind of weapons. Well, we have to start off with the with a foundation of fact. Uh, fact A: Syria had these weapons. There's there's no doubt about it. Syria doesn't deny it. Uh, fact B: Syria signed the Chemical Weapons Convention. Um, fact C: Russia agreed to be the guarantor of Syrian compliance with the Chemical Weapons Con uh, Convention. You know, fact D, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, which is the UN-sponsored uh, organization that, um, that oversees the implementation of the Chemical Weapons Conviction, uh, Convention, went into Syria and uh, oversaw the complete destruction, certified, and I want to emphasize that word, certified, the complete elimination of Syria's chemical weapons program. Now, that includes the weapons themselves, the storage facilities, the loading facilities, the means of production, everything certified as being eliminated. Now, there, there, there's a little caveat put into that, because at the time that the uh, OPCW was carrying out its inspections inside Syria, Syria was in, in, you know, wrapped up in this ongoing civil war, and there were large swaths of Syrian territory, including parts of uh, you know, the, the uh, territory that contained parts of the uh, chemical weapons 
uh, capacity of the Syrian government that weren't under the control of the Syrian government. They were under control of rebels. And there are numerous uh, accounts of how the rebels gained access to um, you know, certain uh, features of the Syrian chemical weapons capability, including the probability that they uh, got their hands on the precursor chemicals uh, that are used to, to make sarin. Um, again, there's not, we, we, we can't prove this beyond a shadow of a doubt, but there, there's a level of uncertainty there that uh, some uh, precursor elements of sarin nerve agent may have fallen under the control of the rebel forces. But in terms of the Syrian government's possession of this, the OPCW certified it. They, uh, and and this, this means after a process of verification, uh, certified that these weapons had been eliminated. So we have a problem here where we have a fact-based narrative that starts with the Syrian government having been certified of being rid of all of its weapons, uh, chemical weapons and the probability that elements of the anti-regime forces uh, got their hands on at least the precursor chemicals related to sarin nerve agent. Now we move forward where there seems to be a series of events that take place um, where at a critical time, chemical agent is used, not in a military fashion, by the way. I mean, if you look at every single one of the accusations that have been placed out there about the use of chemical weapons, they've never been used at a critical time and place to achieve a battlefield result. In fact, they've been used uh, almost 100% of the time at a time and place when the Syrian army is gaining superiority on the battlefield, about to achieve a major breakthrough. Something, you know, momentous is happening where the, the tide of fortune is shifting away from the rebels toward the Syrian army, and then, boom, out of nowhere... A militarily useless, a militarily meaningless event is alleged to have occurred that involves either sarin nerve agent or chlorine gas. Now, chlorine gas is not a listed chemical uh, for the Chemical Weapons Convention, and Syria is awash in it, as, in, as is every nation that has a modern water purification system. You bring in these 150-pound cylinders of chlorine gas, you hook them up to a system that purifies water. Syria has lots of these, and these canisters have suddenly appeared on the battlefield uh, to, 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 you know, employ, you know, chlorine gas. But again, they weren't done in a militarily meaningful fashion. They were done in small quantities, and they tended to exclusively, um, you know, hit... Uh, civilians, or in some cases, Syrian army soldiers, when you know it's there's no doubt that the other side, the rebel side, used it. Yeah. The United States and others who have a tendency to be in opposition to the Syrian government have latched on to these allegations of chemical weapons use to point an accusatory finger at the Syrian government to use this as a, as a means of saying this government can't be trusted. This government is in violation of international law. This government is in violation of its, uh, you know, if, if its commitments under the Chemical Weapons Conve uh, Convention. Uh, this seems to be what's happening here. There's no evidence whatsoever that's been presented to prove that the Syrian government has done anything in violation of the Chemical Weapons Convention. You do have various United Nations 
and OPCW reports which uh, point the finger toward the Syrian government. There was this, the, just let's back up for a second, the OPCW, the, the, the inspectors for the OPCW, by their very mandate, can't say Party A or Party B did something. Their, their mandate allows them to say something occurred that involved chemicals that are prohibited under the Chemical Weapons Convention, and they can provide a fact-based narrative of what occurred, but they're not allowed to say who done it. Um, unique to Syria, something called the Joint Investigative Mechanism was formed under the authority of the uh, Security Council that worked in conjunction with the OPCW to investigate certain uh, events that took place. And this joint investigative mechanism was mandated to say who did it. And on numerous occasions, the conclusion of their report was that the Syrian government did it. And the United States and others have jumped on this to say this is the proof we need. But when you deconstruct every single joint investigative mechanism report, you find flawed technique. You, fly, you find flawed analysis. You find a process that has been heavily politicized by the Americans, by the British, by the French, to produce an outcome that is, you know, that, that is an anti-Syrian regime. This is one of the reasons why the Russians finally vetoed the extension of the Joint Investigative Mechanism uh, and said, we no longer trust this mechanism. You know, anybody who takes a you know, a fact-based, um, nonpartisan look at the, the, the reports of the Joint Investigative Mechanism will find that they are fundamentally flawed reports that have been politicized to achieve an outcome that will be used by certain members of the Security Council, namely the United States, for political purposes, namely to accuse the Syrian government of using these chemical weapons. That's, that's the... That's what we find today. Um, you know, last year at this time, there was a uh, you know, Khan Shaikun was accused of being attacked by a sarin chlorine nerve agent. Uh, the, 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 the joint investigative mechanism, together with the OPCW, reached the conclusion that the Syrian government was responsible, and yet not one inspector visited the site that was attacked. Not one inspector visited the airfield that was bombed by the United States because we said that's where they handled the weapons, they used weapons. Nobody inspected that to say, here's the evidence that weapons were handled here. You would have found it had you gone there. What they did rely on, though, were samples collected by the rebel forces um, in almost a, a Keystone Cop fashion, uh, wearing hazardous materials protective suits as if there's something dangerous in place, but they're training suits. Uh, they clearly say training on them, so it was it was a show. It was it was it was a farce. It was a an act of, of theater. Um, right. They, you, know, you can't trust that outcome, and yet now we have a situation in Duma, where once again the very same rebels who were responsible for the fraud last year are presenting video images and such of an event, uh, and this prompted the United States, France, and Great Britain to take action. And yet, when you deconstruct this, you find that nothing happened in Duma, that this is all a farce, this is all theater, and I hope that uh, this time uh, the difference will be that the OPCW, when they go into Duma, is going to find no evidence whatsoever of a, of a chemical attack. Now, the United States and France and Great Britain have already set the stage for this 
uh, probable outcome by saying, well, it's, it's clear that the Russians and the Syrians have cleansed the site. So they, they, they're already creating you know, the, 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 the conditions for uncertainty to be injected into what would probably be an absolute negative uh, result by the uh, OPCW. Um, and and this, this tragic farce will, will continue. Uh, we're speaking with Scott Ritter. Uh, Scott, I, 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 this is incredibly useful and valuable. I want to I want to raise a little bit different question, however. Um, the the line at the top of your recent article said, "We need hard evidence of what happened in Duma before threatening war." And my question is, what hard evidence, even if it were all solidly proven to everyone's satisfaction, could possibly justify threatening war? And isn't threatening war and also waging war illegal under, among other things, the United Nations Charter? Well, first of all, the United Nations Charter doesn't make war illegal. It makes wars of aggression illegal. Um, there, there is a process that can be used to justify a military response. Um, one, you know, but that, 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 that process implies that a process actually takes place. Uh, for instance, under the uh, the Chemical Weapons Convention, a signatory party accused of using uh, chemical weapons, there will be an investigation um, by the OPCW. If they find that uh, chemical weapons were used, then there's a, there's a whole process under the Chemical Weapons Convention where the parties seek to resolve the issue. If that issue cannot be resolved, it would then be brought forward to the Security Council, where the Security Council would seek to go through a series of measures uh, invoking various resolutions um, short of a Chapter 7 resolution authorizing use of force in an effort to remedy the situation. Only if all these processes has failed and the party, the accused party, continues to operate in a manner which is deemed to threaten international peace and security by the Security Council would a Chapter 7 resolution authorizing the use of military force be authorized. This did not happen. What we have is the United States going to the Security Council, Ambassador Nikki Haley saying, if you don't automatically agree with us that there's a problem in Syria worthy of military force, then you are no good, you are useless to us, and we will act alone. And, of course, the Security Council did not agree. Russia vetoed their, uh, the, the, their efforts, and the United States acted in violation of international law. This is what people need to understand that what we did on, uh, on Saturday in attacking Syria, uh, you know, it, it violates international law and, frankly speaking, violates American law. I mean, where's congressional action? How does this fit into the authorization for the use of military force? The authorization for use of military force that currently exists allows military power to be used in fighting terrorist organizations, non-state entities, who are operating on a global basis to harm the United States. Even if Syria did do what they were accused of doing in Duma, how does that harm the United States? How does that authorize the use of military force under current um, you know, congressional authorities? Congress was never consulted on, on this attack. Congress has never given a chance to weigh in. And ultimately, no evidence was provided that sustained the arguments put forward by the Trump administration. So... Right. You know, there, 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 there is a process where war can occur. That process did not, did not happen. 
Right, but even accepting that for the sake of argument, uh, the violation of the UN Charter, the absence of any UN Security Council authorization and so forth, would remain the case even if Congress had been consulted and Congress had formally declared war on Syria. That wouldn't legalize it uh, under the United Nations. Right, but the United, but now we come to the hard, the, the hard truth. Uh, the, the United States international law does not apply to the United States. We've made that just as plain and, 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 and simple and true as it can be. Uh, the United States, uh, as it's currently configured, will never accept any uh, submission of its sovereignty to an international organization, and this includes the United Nations Security Council. Um, the, uh, that's, that's just a sad truth. Now we're, now, now we're entering into fantasy, fantasy land the second we think that the United States will... Uh, will abide by international law when it's inconvenient. I think the most important thing here is that the United States doesn't even have internal checks and balances uh, about, you know, right. halting the, the rush to war. I mean, you know, to, to talk about Article 51 is a joke because the United States with its veto will never be held accountable by the, by, by the United Nations or by the international community. But when we speak about American democracy and the checks and balances that are supposed to come into play, the fact that Congress has 100% abrogated any authority or responsibility for the conduct of military operations to an executive yep. who appears to be able to launch missiles void of any evidence, missiles at all whim. And for all those chest-thumping Americans out there who think it's great to go out and wage this global war on terror, you know, remember, we launched missiles based upon falsified evidence presented by a Saudi-funded, Saudi-backed Islamic fundamentalist group who beheads women and children on a regular basis, uh, who is allied with al-Nusra al and al-Qaeda, the same people who attacked us on 9-11, uh, if you buy into that narrative. But the point is, you know, who are we fighting for when we launch these missiles? This was an active theater designed to lift an American's president's uh, public standing at a time when he was being attacked uh, on, a, on the domestic political front. This was yeah. about anything other than a threat to the United States. Uh, Scott Ritter, uh, several months back, uh, Colleen Rowley, friend of mine, sent me another great article you'd written. It was from Truth Dig, and it was replying to an article about so-called ethical wars by Pete Kilner, who now teaches ethics at West Point. And I contacted Kilner because I'm always trying to get someone to debate me on whether a just war is possible. And so he and I did two public uh, debates, and in my humble opinion, he lost both of them. Uh, can you... Can you comment on this notion of these these wars being done uh, ethically? He he includes you know Iraq and Afghanistan and other recent wars among the the just and and ethically waged wars of the United States. Well, you know this is this is this is a tough one because um, you know I'm you know I, I spent a considerable amount of time in the Marine Corps and um, you know I was prepared and am currently prepared to. Uh, act in a military fashion to defend my country and defend, you know, and that, that includes not just in defense of an invasion of my country, but to defend um, the, the interests of my country abroad. Uh, so I'm not a pacifist. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't buy into pacifism, and I hope I'm not insulting anybody in your audience or you. We will um, agree to disagree as we've got right, right. minutes left, that, and that, we won't... Uh... But the one thing I've learned in, in, in learning to 
not just learning to fight a war, but in actually fighting a war, is there's no such thing as an ethical war. I mean, let's just n- stop that nonsense at the, you know, right, right off the bat. War is about killing, plain and simple. And uh, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, but if you're somebody who believes in the sanctity of human life, um, you are ethically wrong if you say war can be fought in an ethical fashion. Um, first of all, the people you're killing have nothing to do, for the most part, with that which you claim to be fighting for. Every Iraqi that uh, died because of my actions had nothing to do with the regime of Saddam Hussein. Nothing whatsoever. Most of them died because of bombings that took place on territory that we assessed as being related to some greater evil. Um, And all it was related to was the day-to-day life of, of an Iraqi civilian who ended up perishing because some idiot in the headquarters... Uh, put a designation on a point on a map, and somebody dropped a bomb on that. How is that ethical? There's nothing ethical about this. Now, we can make an argument about just wars. But again, if we're going to say that we are a people who believe in the rule of law, and we have signed on to certain legal frameworks that require due process, then the only just war is that war which follows and exhausts those legal processes to prevent war before we engage in war. But even if you do that, you can't have an ethical war. Now, we can talk about limiting um, you know, the, the, the damage to civilians. But you know, I've read the Geneva Convention. I've read over and over again about how the United States, uh, you know, we, we can accept collateral damage in the conduct of a legitimate military, uh, you know, a, an operation that has legitimate military objectives. Well, my God, you know, being, being a, uh, a writer, being somebody creative, I can come up with a legitimate military objective, or i.e. excuse, for any number of death, deaths. For instance, we're allowed to drop an atomic bomb on a city. <laughs> is, is that ethical? We just annihilated tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people to achieve a military objective? No, there's nothing ethical about war. And anybody who claims that war can be fought on an ethical basis is simply providing an excuse or cover for the horror of war that should be enough to get any sane thinking person to say, we can never go down this path. And that's my goal and objective as somebody who isn't a pacifist, who you know, has fought in a war and is prepared to do it again. I keep telling people (laughs) the last thing on the planet you want to do is go to war. And I beg you, I plead with you to do everything possible short of war to make sure that we don't head down that path because once you turn on that switch, you can't control it. And people are going to die, innocent people. They're going to die by the bushel full, and there's nothing ethical about that. And anybody who tries to paint what we do in a time of war with an ethical brush is delusional. Scott Ritter, uh, less than a minute left. It seems you're three-quarters of the way toward agreeing with me, uh, someone who (laughs) wants to get rid of war entirely. Would a first step perhaps be to spend something less than a trillion dollars a year getting ready for more wars? Look, if you buy it, you're going to use it. That's just the way it goes. So if we're going to spend $700-plus billion on a military machine, eventually we're going to succumb to the temptation to use it, whether it's a president who wants to send new shiny missiles 
towards an empty building in Syria, or Madeleine Albright uh, and others chastising Colin Powell that we have this great military. Why are we afraid to use it? Uh, the bottom line is we create something that's going to be used. And the other problem with spending that much money is we create something that can be used in any situation. As right. opposed to creating a defense force, we create a force that can be used at any time uh, to replace a deficit, for instance, in diplomatic action. I'm a huge believer in diplomacy. (laughs) I I wish we could go on. We're sadly out of time. Scott Ritter, a former weapons inspector, will have links to his articles and books on TalkNationRadio.org. Thanks for coming on TalkNationRadio. It was a pleasure. Thank you. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at RootsAction.org. Help end war at WorldBeyondWar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.